0: Phil Bryant and the Honorable Morris McTeague QSO.
1: America's Roundtable from Washington D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcast, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable.
0: Good morning. It's Saturday. We thank you for joining us this weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. We're delighted to welcome a special guest, Deborah Leprevaud, a pioneer and principal leader addressing global corruption and strengthening the rule of law. Debra had a 20-year career with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Debra served as a supervisory special agent on the International Corruption Unit at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., and was instrumental in initiating the FBI's kleptocracy program. Debra traced and seized more than $1 billion from foreign corrupt officials. Debra has spent the past 23 years working international corruption investigations. Debra is also a forensic scientist and spent several years on the FBI's evidence response team unit at the FBI lab. Indeed, it is our great honor to welcome you back to America's Roundtable. Good morning, Debra.
2: Welcome, Deborah, Joel and Natasha, it's great to talk with you again.
0: Deborah, nations around the world have protected their national borders, which affirm their respective nation-state's sovereign territory. In fact, sovereignty is generally understood as the authority of a polity to govern itself. Hence, strict border controls provide protection for citizens within sovereign states. We can observe the significance of borders and national security when we view what is transpiring on the Ukraine and Russian border, where NATO officials are calling for greater support, or perhaps the tensions found on the India-China border. And a recent guest on America's Roundtable, Professor Victor Davis Hanson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, shared the following message in one of his pieces and also during our recent conversation, and I quote, the U.S. government likewise has utterly failed to secure our borders, abandoning the fundamental idea of a unique place and a sovereign domain so necessary for a nation-state. And over 2 million foreign nationals are scheduled to cross the southern border illegally this year, often with impunity, unquote. Now, we're seeing how state governors including Governor Abbott of Texas, have deployed the National Guard and aided by other states to protect certain border sections known for illegal immigrant crossings, but also criminal activities carried out by brazen transnational organized crime networks. This past year, two Yemeni men on the FBI's terror watch list were arrested for illegally entering the U.S. from Mexico, and this raised alarm about how Americans are viewing the porous border which is now being used by terrorists on a terror watch list. In November 2021, we learned of a drug bust at the Texas border which netted nearly two tons of narcotics with an estimated street value of more than $53 million. Some may say that it's just a drop in the bucket. As one witnesses the national security crisis at the U.S. southern border and the humanitarian disaster with nearly 2 million illegal immigrants crossing the U.S. border during a pandemic, individual citizens across the political spectrum are deeply concerned at how we as a nation are dealing with this significant problem. Deb, what are your thoughts on this serious issue and what are the principal solutions to addressing the national security crisis at our southern border.
2: It's very interesting because 26 years ago, I was sworn in as a special agent with the FBI. And part of the oath that I swore to was to protect the United States against all threats, both foreign and domestic. And part of the protecting the United States from all threats, both foreign and domestic, is knowing who is entering our country. Because we have to know who's entering. As you said the two terrorists that were coming in more fentanyl has come in the biggest seizures of fentanyl and other narcotics are coming in across the porous border and we're not doing what is necessary whether you like the building of the wall or not if you think about the united states as if it were your personal residence it's like do you lock your door at night absolutely does that mean that you don't want anybody in your house it says no You want to know who's entering your house. You want to have some control over who's entering your house. Well, this country is my home, and I am all for legalized immigration. My former sister-in-law was Russian. My nephew's Cuban, and they entered the United States legally and became citizens. So I'm a big supporter of regulated and legal immigration. But when we have a porous border like we do right now, the numbers are, are just astronomical. I think it was 1.6 million had come in during fiscal FY, which ended September 30. You know, 1.6 million people. Now you think it's like talking about the national deficit and spouting numbers and the trillions, and, and nobody understands what that means. But if you think, what is 1.6 million people? That is three times the population of Wyoming. That is almost three times the population of Vermont, more than twice the population of Washington, D.C., Alaska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Delaware. So imagine your responsibility is to feed, clothe, house the population of Delaware and and South Dakota put together. That's uh, that's about 1.6 million people. So where in our American budget is that money coming from? They say it's costing the American taxpayer about $60 million a week. That is $3.1 billion per year. And that's just to take care of the unaccompanied minors. We've seen a lot of newscasts where a small two-year-old will be dropped by one of the coyotes bringing uh, illegal aliens into the U.S. The Border Patrol agents come across a two-, three-, four-year-old just sitting by themselves or with some other small children. I've worked for the government for 26 years. Where do we have babysitting? Where in the budget do we have enough money, beds? And I mean, I'm a mom, so I know what it takes to take care of a two, three, or four-year-old and keep them fed, happy, dry, and clean. So who are we hiring? Where is that budget coming from? Where are we housing them? Who is taking care of them every day? Uh, I mean, the numbers are just really astronomical. And nobody's really talking about where the $3 billion a year plus is coming from out of the U.S. budget to address these issues. Then there's the legal aspect of it, the, the amount of uh, drugs that are coming into the country. Joel, as you said, the amount, when some of the largest narcotics busts have uh, been documented, but that's what we stopped. Do we have good numbers on what's gotten through? My recommendation, no matter what political party is in office, is that we have the duty to the United States citizens to protect our borders. We have the duty to American citizens to know who is entering our country and offering safe haven when we can to those who truly need it. Uh, But how do we do that in such a way where we, one of the benefits of having a border wall is having points of entry that are regulated, and we know who's coming into the country.
1: Uh, Deb, you addressed the humanitarian and national security crisis at the southern border. And based on the website data by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, in the fiscal year 2021, there were 10,763 U.S. Border Patrol criminal non-citizen arrests which was 4.4 times higher than previous year. The criminal arrest more than quadrupled in one year. And among these arrests, over 6,000 were arrested for illegal re-entry or entry, 2,100 and some for illegal drug possession and trafficking, 1,178 for assault, battery and domestic violence, 825 for burglary, robbery, larceny, theft and fraud, 336 for illegal weapons trafficking, and 60 for homicide and manslaughter. And these numbers reflect just those that were caught. In simplified terms, Deb, and we talked about it in the past, we can attribute this massive illegal immigration on the southern border to kleptocracy and transnational organized crime. The economic migrants are fleeing kleptocracy and transnational organized crime in their own countries, while the same transnational organized crime groups are crossing our southern border. Deb, what mechanisms do we have on our disposal to severely crack down on transnational organized crime and penalize kleptocratic regimes?
2: You know, that's very interesting what you were just saying, Natasha, because if you look at who is coming into our country, uh, Mexico is still the number one source of illegal migrants entering the U.S. But behind them, you have the Northern Triangle, which is uh, Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador, all of which are highly Suffer from corruption that is crippling their country. Those countries are quickly followed by Brazil, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Cuba. Again, countries that are suffering from uh, kleptocratic regimes. I mean, Venezuela is a, a perfect example. You know, the Maduro regime is considered one of the most corrupt South American regimes. The people are fleeing the country because there is no food. Why? Because money has been stolen. A lot of that money illegally ended up in the United States, in the Miami and uh, Southern Florida area. So it's a twofold. The United States has to continue to fight cryptocracy in the Latin American and South American countries. And a lot of that, because I, I have worked with addressing corruption in Northern Triangle. In many cases, there is no political will from those countries because the people in power are benefiting. So the United States is trying to address corruption in in those countries. But the reality is we need to figure out how to help those people and help them fight in their own countries to improve their future and not just cross into an overwhelming situation on our southern border.
1: Deb, uh, Dr. Victor Davis Hanson writes in his book, The Dying Citizen, about another dangerous trend in America, which is state nullification efforts, in which some states blatantly ignore federal laws and thus deprive Americans of their constitutional rights. One such example is the emergence of sanctuary cities, which have released into the general population over 10,000 non-criminal aliens, whom ICE agents were attempting to deport, in the U.S. There are currently some 550 sanctuary jurisdictions, entire states, counties, cities, and municipalities, and sanctuary officials ignore the need for the federal enforcement of the southern border. The consequences of such practice are detrimental to U.S. citizens, as you kindly mentioned earlier and one of the most infamous cases was in san francisco whereby a seven-time convicted felon and five-time deported illegal alien was not turned over to ICE but released by san francisco sheriff's department and later killed Kate Steinle a young San Franciscan lady. Deb, what are your thoughts about the federal enforcement of laws when it comes to illegal immigration and in so-called sanctuary cities?
2: You know, that poor young woman died in her father's arms, and that is a horrific crime. You know, what I have to say is, as a former federal law enforcement officer, I did not have the right to pick and choose which laws I like and which laws I enforce. My job was to enforce the laws of the United States. And there are so many cities, whether you know they're California, Oregon, New York, Pennsylvania. Uh, I mean, the, the list of sanctuary cities is rather extensive. And I'm like, you are not doing your job when you are not enforcing the laws of the United States and not working with law enforcement. If you don't like the laws, then get them changed. But you know what? The laws haven't been changed because when really pushed, no one wants to change those laws because there is a purpose behind those laws. They protect the citizens of the United States. So instead they choose not to enforce them. And I think once you choose, you start picking and choosing which laws you enforce, you are not doing your job as I said, as a former federal law enforcement officer, I didn't say, oh, well, I don't really think that law is good, so I'm not going to enforce it. I'm not gonna arrest that guy, I'm not gonna investigate. No, I investigated 297 plus federal violations that are you know, U.S. law. And, and I just don't understand, because it's not just as it relates to illegal aliens and sanctuary cities, but we've seen this huge push on defunding the police And yet, look at San Francisco today. They have changed their tune. Why? Because, yeah, are there bad cops out there? Yes. But are the mass majority of police officers and federal law enforcement officers wonderful people who are honorable and uphold the law? Yes, they are. And if you had any idea of how many crimes are solved every single year, it's staggering. And so to... Pick and choose whether it's a violation of immigration and the number of people that get kicked out of this country and then come back in illegally because we have a porous border and are able to commit crimes again. I just don't think anybody who swears to their job, whether it's a prosecutor or a, a local police officer or a federal police officer, has the right to pick and choose which laws they uphold. I think it's our job to uphold the laws that have been voted and decided on.
0: Deb in this next segment you've just uh, brought us to the importance of policing in America mm-hmm. And in September of 2021, the FBI reported that the number of murders in the United States jumped by nearly 30% in 2020 compared with the previous year in the largest single-year increase ever recorded in the country. And per Gallup, Americans are most likely to have experienced theft, with 14% saying money or property was stolen from them or another household member in the past year. Vandalism at 12% is also one of the more common crimes. And the biggest increase observed this year in 2021 was three percentage points for burglary with five percent saying their home or apartment was broken into in the past year and americans also remember the riots and the looting of the summer of 2020 and during 2020 there were very loud voices from coast to coast calling for defunding police departments U.S. Senator Tim Scott, a respected African-American legislator who knew from his own experiences of being stopped frequently on Capitol Hill, gathered with a group of bipartisan leaders on Capitol Hill and put forward an important bill, the Justice Act, that addressed police reform, failed to receive robust support from his colleagues in the Senate. And many believe that the bill would have been put in motion and pushed some vital police reforms. And we also had a law enforcement officer, Governor Phil Bryant, from the state of Mississippi, who voiced support for reforms and was deeply concerned about the campaign to defund the police. And now we're witnessing command staff, such as the leadership in Rochester, New York, with the police chief and his top senior team resigning over the efforts undertaken to defund police departments. And morale has dropped. And as we see what is happening across the country, what are the principal steps that should be undertaken to address police reform and to protect our fellow Americans so they feel safe in their homes, when traveling on the streets, and in public places?
2: Obviously, there are some measures of police reform that are needed. Uh, In other words, use of deadly force. But there are reasons. There are times when deadly force is necessary. But for those individual police officers who who abuse their power, they should be dealt with appropriately. But to paint with a broad paintbrush that all police are bad and that you should defund the police or that we don't really need police, we need more public, public advocates. What people who want that don't understand is that there is a victim to these crimes. And if somebody is walking, if an old woman is walking down the street and she gets beat up for her handbag, the person who did that, I mean, there is a criminal and a victim. Law enforcement is there to be the advocate for the victim. And uh, so I saw this big mass, you know, defund police. One of the things that I thought very interesting is if you look at the autonomous zone that was made in, I think it was Seattle, what did they do? They created an autonomous zone. Within a week, what did they have around the autonomous zone? They had a wall. (laughs) the self-proclaimed leader of the autonomous zone within a week was carrying a gun so i mean it's like everything you're against it was like watching the lord of the flies they they went crazy and do you understand you just did what you're you're saying you're against but you did it because you wanted to keep somebody out and you wanted to protect what you had in so what did you a wall and a gun and so it's like the world kind of went crazy for a little while there but you are seeing the negative impacts of a defund the police there are so many police officers said you know what i bust my butt every day to protect the people and the citizens and the store owners in in my area and to be spit on to be told that i'm racist based on what because i wear a blue uniform and to be uh, so berated by the media so many police officers said You know, I joined to protect and serve and and to be treated like this unfairly. I've got 27 years, then I'll just retire. And so, yes, we've had so many quits, so many retire, and budgets severely cut. And here it is, 12 months later, what is the impact? The impact is we're seeing this huge increase in smash and grabs. What was so amazing on some of the, I believe, some of the smash and grabs in New York is that 12 people were arrested and then let go the next day. I mean, it's like, I want to know the long-term studies on how many people show up for their initial appearance if there's no bail and then where's the onus on arresting them the police officers have to go out and now find them again and try to rearrest them And, and now they know it's coming so at a great a greatly enhanced chance of risk to the police officer's safety I am all for great policing I do believe that there's probably more that can be done for social programs in these neighborhoods but at the end of the day People are passing the buck on why people are doing these smash and grabs. They're saying, oh, it's because of COVID. Oh, it's because of this. No, you know, it's like, I'm sorry. But when a Walgreens gets looted, that's not because of COVID. That, there are people who are basically thieves. And what, I don't care what race you are. If you're in there looting the store, you're a, a criminal. I don't care what color you are. White, black, Hispanic, Asian, doesn't matter. You've broken the law. And my job is to uphold that law. I think, unfortunately, people are seeing the incredible negative impact of their efforts to defund police.
0: And just earlier, before we began the interview, we were talking about the cost of inflation and other things earlier on. And in a piece in the Wall Street Journal, Arizona Attorney General stated this, and uh, this is Mr. Brnovich in his statement. I quote, Studies show as much as $68.9 billion in goods were stolen from retailers in 2019. And the economic impact of retail crime is $125.7 billion in lost sales and 658,000 lost jobs, unquote. So it has a serious implication, uh, not just only in the law and order arena, which is so vital, but it affects Americans when it comes to the cost of doing business for business people, but also the lost jobs as well.
2: You know, it's very interesting because one of the stores that was hit in New York was a Nordstrom's. And of course, they were in the smash and grab. They're in and out in three minutes. And they were stealing high end like Louis Vuitton or, or, you know, handbags and other things. And you think, well, a oh, big deal. Nordstrom has insurance. But what was the, the numbers of the, the loss amount?
0: Yeah, it's actually 68 billion in goods were stolen. And basically, it's $125.7 billion in lost sales and 658,000 lost jobs.
2: If you think that 100 handbags walked out, walked out of Nordstrom's, there are people that make the handbag. There are the people that uh, transport that handbag to Nordstrom's. There are salespeople at Nordstrom's who sell that. And now, all of those, like, will Nordstrom's carrying that merchandise, or, or, or will they have to now have it all behind cases that eventually, whoever can make an unbreakable case that won't break with a sledgehammer, I'm sure we should be investing there. There are brazen crimes. Who's going to stop a guy toting a sledgehammer? One of the interesting things, Joel, was that uh, some of the robberies that happened in places like Walgreens, CVS, and grocery stores. Well, some of those, like, grocery stores have like a 1%. Profit margin, one to three percent profit margin. So if a thousand dollars walks out, they have to sell a thousand items just to recover that loss. And I mean, I just don't think people realize that some of these stores work on a very small profit margin and their proceeds are made from quantity. And so when half of their merchandise walks out the store, I know that in several areas, some small stores, small local stores, the CVS and the Walgreens, are closing because it's the the safety of their patrons, their profit margin, and it's, look, I'm your community Walgreens, I'm your community CVS, and when things go bad, you loot us. Why would we want to continue being in that
1: neighborhood? And and Deb, uh, this past week we celebrated Bill of Rights Day. On December 15, it was the 230th anniversary of the ratification of the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution. And on the same day, in 1791, the Commonwealth of Virginia General Assembly completed the ratification process for these amendments. And today we would like to talk to you about the importance of the Second Amendment, which says... A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Deb, in your experience as a senior FBI official, could you kindly share with the listeners from your perspective about the importance of the Second Amendment for law-abiding citizens?
2: Well, first of all, I'm sworn to uphold the Constitution. (laughs) So yes, I I defend the Second Amendment uh, and the right to bear arms. Um, I've had a side arm for the last 26 years and, you know, as a federal agent and now as a retired federal agent, I support the right to bear arms. And what I would recommend also to everyone is that they understand the responsibility that goes with the right to bear arms. And that is to secure your weapon, to keep it you know, in a secure place and to also be trained so you know how to use it. Uh, I think so many people have a weapon and maybe aren't properly trained and that that's a concern, but I still support the right to bear arms. What's interesting is a lot of places that feel uneasy around handguns is that they did not grow up in a farm or ranching type environment. So like if you grew up on the Upper East Side in New York and your second or third generation New York City, you know, grandpa wasn't out hunting for food. My family grew up in Arkansas, and I can tell you, my mom went out and shot <laughs> whatever they were going <laughs> to have for dinner, along with her brothers. <laughs> my dad was from West Virginia, so he also grew up hunting. And so to people that live in Texas and Arkansas and half of the South, where hunting for your food is a daily or weekly occurrence or, or a seasonal occurrence then they're comfortable with guns and they understand uh, the importance of the right to bear arms. I think it's a lot of people that are growing up in in inner cities where they just haven't, their only exposure to weapons has been negative because it's in the hands of a criminal criminal element.
0: In fact, uh, Deb, in spite of the great challenges that we're seeing with the campaign to defund the police and police departments and so forth, what we have been noticing across the country is tremendous support for police officers. We're seeing some of these rallies that are taking place where uh, they're acknowledging the importance of police officers in their local communities. And I think that's a such a positive narrative that is not perhaps taking place in the major urban areas of our country, uh, but in communities across America, uh, in the Midwest and the South, we've we've sensed this great support for local law enforcement and how important their task is. As you've mentioned, it's a dangerous one. On. and they are there to protect and serve the community. And without law and order, uh, there's anarchy and chaos. And uh, so during the season here, with all the tensions that are high, um, you know, we've certainly sensed a great appreciation for law enforcement. And we trust that this will certainly be amplified in the days to come in supporting law enforcement and supporting police reform, as well as making sure that they have the resources that they need uh, to carry out their tasks.
2: I am thrilled when I see people support uh, law enforcement because there, there's been several people in the media, especially some college professors who, who openly say they don't trust the police. And I'm like, seriously, do you understand the impact of your words? Because I will tell you once again, 90% or more of police officers are great individuals who joined law enforcement to protect and serve, who are out there to help you when your car's broken down on the side of the road. The first ones on the scene of a terrible accident where someone has been killed, maimed, and provide assistance until paramedics arrive. When a bomb goes off, law enforcement is running towards the explosion, not away from it. So to hear someone disparage law enforcement shows me that they really don't understand the job. They should educate themselves and go out and ride with police officers, if they have the opportunity to, to see what they respond to, because the reality is, again, for most crimes, there is a victim, and law enforcement is the advocate, and sometimes the only advocate, for those victims to find justice, for someone who's been murdered, to, to find that murderer and give the family some solace. So, yes, I applaud those communities that understand what it really takes to be a police officer if you see somebody standing out in sub-freezing temperatures directing traffic or because something's fallen in the road there's been a, a blizzard and a snow you know who's showing up in a police officer and so you know what give them a cup of coffee give them a the hot cocoa and say thank you sir for your service
0: Deborah Leprevard is a pioneer and principal leader addressing global corruption and strengthening the rule of law. And Deborah Leprevard had a 20 year career with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, serving as a supervisory special agent on the International Corruption Unit at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., and was instrumental in initiating the FBI's kleptocracy program. And Deborah traced and seized more than $1 billion from foreign corrupt officials and has spent the past 23 years working international corruption investigations. Indeed, Deborah, we truly appreciate your leadership, your own personal work that you have done as a law enforcement officer, and appreciate all that you've done for this country in upholding the Constitution and addressing some of the great challenges of our day. We thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable.
1: Thank you, Deb. Great to see you
0: again. Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO.
1: America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org, iLeadersSummit.org.